You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Eric Hayden to get the inside scoop on Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Funds. Eric is the founder and managing partner at Urban Catalyst and has been responsible for developing more than $3.5 billion in real estate projects, including over 2,300 residential units in the California Bay Area. Since 2017, Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Funds had been all the rage and there's been a lot of money pouring into them but I hadn't had the opportunity to bring an expert on the show to talk about them in detail until now. They've been something I've wanted to study personally and learn more about. I just never had the time. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Eric and I found it really educational. I hope you guys do too. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I'm very excited to have Eric Hayden. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thanks, Robert. Good to be here. Let's start our conversation today by talking a bit about you. For those listening who aren't familiar with you and your background, tell us a bit about yourself, how you got to where you are today. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I went to the University of Washington and I majored in electrical engineering. And of course, I do nothing with that degree. I've been in real estate my entire career, uh, over 17 years now. I started off working for large general contractors, uh, doing tenant improvements. And one day I was, in a, I was in a meeting. I was the owner's representative and we were representing a developer. And it was their kickoff meeting on this project. They were doing a condo conversion of an office building in San Francisco. And he was directing his team. And I thought, man, that's who I want to be when I grow up. So I went out cold called every single family home builder out there, picked up a job with Summerhill Homes. And that started my career as a developer. And since then, I've worked my way up doing large institutional scale and quality projects to the point where I started Urban Catalyst a couple of years ago. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about Urban Catalyst and how that came to be and its founding story. So at Urban Catalyst, my plan was always to create a real estate equity fund focused on ground-up development projects in downtown San Jose, California. That's really because of the overall macroeconomic trends in Silicon Valley, all pointing towards downtown San Jose as the next place to do development on a large scale. And when I started forming Urban Catalyst, I had been forming it for a couple of months when I learned about the Opportunity Zone program. And that everywhere that I was planning on doing development was already located in an opportunity zone. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to be able to give my investors those additional tax benefits associated with the opportunity zone program? And so that's how Urban Catalyst became an opportunity zone fund. I've heard a little bit about opportunity zones, opportunity funds. I've read a little bit about them. But for those listening that might not know what they are, explain to us what those two concepts are. So first, opportunity zones... They were created as a part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. And what it did is it designated certain census tracts to qualify as opportunity zones, in general, lower income census tracts. The different states were allowed to choose 25% of the eligible census tracts in their state. Here in California, Governor Jerry Brown chose the census tracts in April of 2018 
you know, they really weren't reinventing the wheel with what was eligible. It really matches up very closely with uh, census tracts that are eligible for tax credit financing for below market rate housing. The program itself, it's really put into place to create positive social and economic impact in lower income areas. And what they want to do is they want to incentivize investment into these areas. So they give you some pretty favorable tax advantage ways to do that. Who is best suited to take advantage of these opportunity zones? Do you have to be a massive fund like you have built with Urban Catalyst to participate in these opportunities or can it be small mom and pop investors too? People that should take advantage of the Opportunity Zone program are people that have capital gains events because you need to have a capital gains event, invest into an Opportunity Zone fund in order to get the tax benefits associated. Now, you can create your own fund and I know there's a lot of people out there that have. I'd say it like this. The Opportunity Zone program is complicated. And in order to comply the way that you need to comply with the IRS, take some additional accounting work, some additional knowledge about tax laws. And if you were to do a very small fund, probably those additional tax burdens and the consultants that you would need to hire would make it so that you wouldn't want to do it. But anybody doing a fund, say over $5 million, probably makes sense to do a fund. Or if you're not a professional investor into real estate, you don't typically own real estate, then maybe investing into an existing Opportunity Zone fund like Urban Catalyst makes sense. In general, our investors, their capital gains events, I mean, you can break capital gains events into three categories, the sale of stock, the sale of real estate, or the sale of a business. Here at Urban Catalyst, we found that the majority of our investors, the sale of stock was uh, their capital gains event. And we think a lot of that has to do with us being here in Silicon Valley. Our prototypical investor would be somebody who's worked at Facebook for 10 years or Google or Apple. They have a lot of money tied up in stock options and they're looking to diversify their portfolio. They don't want to pay the taxes. And Opportunity Zone funds come along and now they have a tax advantaged way to diversify into real estate. Most of them are not real estate professionals and they want someone who is a professional like us here at Urban Catalyst to manage their properties for them. So We've seen a lot of that type of investor come into our program. Of course, there are some of the ultra wealthy that do either create large funds for themselves or invest into large funds like Herbert Catalyst. I'm not going to say that either of us are tax professionals. We're not. But let's have a, a discussion about the tax implications of opportunity zones. You talked about how you have to have capital gains in order to take advantage of these opportunities. What tax advantages do they provide to investors that traditional real estate does not? This program has been called a a once in a lifetime tax advantage program. And and it really is. In general, if you have a capital gains event and you invest into an opportunity zone fund within 180 days, similar to the timeframe of a 1031 exchange, you're able to defer paying taxes on that capital gains event really until you pay your taxes in 2027. So that's the first benefit. The second, if you invest into an opportunity zone fund in the tax year 2020 or 2021, when you pay your taxes in 2027, you get a 10% discount. So for every $100 that you would have owed in taxes, you only have to pay $90. And those first two benefits, that's typically what people hear about when they hear about opportunity zones. They think, okay, I get to defer paying taxes. Great. The third benefit is really the biggest benefit. And that is after an investor's money seasons in an opportunity zone fund for 10 years, all of the profits from the fund itself are tax-free. So for example, here, here at Urban Catalyst, we're structured like a traditional real estate equity fund where we're going to go out, we're going to build these buildings, we're going to lease them up, stabilize them, and then we're going to hold them until we hit that 10-year mark. 
And then at 10 years, we're going to sell all of our buildings, liquidate the fund. And that's when we return the majority of the profits to our investors. And those profits are tax-free from a federal capital gains perspective. There are also some, call it additional benefits associated with the structure that we've put into place that I could go into. Why 2027? It's a hard date, right? When they created the program, it was almost, um, they wanted to test it out. They wanted to see, is this a successful program? Is this something that people are actually going to want to do? We don't want it to go on forever. So they said, all right, everybody, you get to defer paying taxes through calendar year 2026, which means you have to pay them in 2027. And if we like the program, we'll extend that into the future. The program itself, as far as when you get those tax-free profits, it lasts through 2047. We'll talk a little bit later in the interview about how the political environment can impact whether that gets extended or not. But you mentioned 1031 Exchange, and I'm glad you did because we had an episode a couple episodes back where we talked about that. And I, I was getting a similar feel to Opportunity Zones as I did to 1031 Exchanges. And on there, the guest mentioned that you needed a capital gains of, say, 50,000 or more to really make a 1031 exchange worth it. Do you find a similar threshold to be, you know, quote unquote, worthwhile for an opportunity zone or opportunity fund? I think you could invest as little as $5,000 and it would still be worth it, especially if you invest into a fund that accepts minimums of that low. I mean, our minimum here at Urban Catalyst is $250,000. But that isn't to say that a $5,000 or $10,000 investor wouldn't benefit from a program like this. I think they would significantly because they're able to get all of these tax benefits investing with professional real estate folks who do this as their full-time jobs. So they get access to these institutional quality projects that maybe they wouldn't have had access to if they were doing a project on their own. And they still get all the same tax benefits as everyone else. Is an opportunity zone or an opportunity fund a tax benefit that is kind of playing into that quote, that famous quote of, the rich get richer because we have to have a lot of money to invest in these funds, right? It sounds like to make it worthwhile, more than $5 million. Do you think it's one of those cases where it's kind of the rich getting richer? Well, no, I only think it's you need $5 million if you're going to create your own fund. To invest into a fund, you know, I know there are a bunch of funds out there that they have minimum investments of like $10,000. So I don't necessarily think it's the rich, rich getting richer. Obviously, Opportunity Zone funds were registered with the SEC. And you have to be an accredited investor to invest. And they have their own criteria as to what an accredited investor is. And that's the SEC and the federal government's way of protecting small investors to make sure that they're sophisticated enough to be able to invest into funds like ours. But that being said, I definitely don't think this is the rich getting richer. The program itself is really focused on creating these positive benefits for the communities that we're doing business in. I was going through all of the projects listed on the Urban Catalyst website, and I noticed that they're all downtown San Jose, California, just like you mentioned a couple minutes ago. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, we're not just fund managers here at Urban Catalyst. We're also the developers of all seven of our projects. And I built Urban Catalyst to be a downtown San Jose development firm, brought on partners that were specialists in downtown San Jose development specifically to do this. Downtown San Jose in general, it's the only true urban environment in Silicon Valley. And if Palo Alto is, say, the center of the Silicon Valley universe, San Jose is 15 miles away, but still hasn't experienced the growth and development that a lot of the cities surrounding Palo Alto have over the last 15 years. If you look at what downtown San Jose is today and what it's going to be 10 years from now, it's going to be night and day. The amount of big tech companies and developers that have moved into downtown 
to revitalize the downtown core is, is very significant. If other cities around it have seen growth over the last 15 years, but San Jose hasn't, why now? What's going to be the catalyst? What's going to be the change? Well, I'll tell you, it, that's really what we saw when I formed Urban Catalyst. Is I saw that the time was now. It was that wave of development was finally going to hit downtown San Jose. You know, San Jose, you know, going back in history, it was a farming community and it built up its downtown like most downtowns did. But when the car was invented and became really prevalent, and when the generation came back from World War II and the baby boomers, San Jose was one of the first cities in America to really experience true urban sprawl. And the downtown was really sucked dry of all the people. The government came in here in California, we had these things called redevelopment agencies. Downtown San Jose became the largest redevelopment area in all of California. And they put billions of dollars of money into the revitalization of the downtown. And that, I'm talking the eminent domain half of downtown. They tore buildings down. They subsidized development. They built parking garages. They redid the streets and sidewalks and street trees. And they did everything in their power from a government perspective to make downtown amazing. But still, the private world never caught up. It was only about two and a half years ago that we saw the private world catching up, that it was the city of Sunnyvale, which is just south of Palo Alto. It had been just going gangbusters with development for 15 years. And now it's almost completely built out. And we say, okay, well, as these massive tech companies just get bigger and bigger and bigger, I mean, right now, for example, Google owns or leases 95% of the office space in the city of Mountain. And Apple owns or leases 85% of the office space in the entire city of Cupertino. There's nowhere left for them to grow except to other cities and other locations throughout the country and the world. But in Silicon Valley, the only place to grow is southward towards the city of San Jose. Yeah, there's nowhere for them to grow but down. Right. I mean, they went to San Francisco, and the peninsula is a very small market. And San Jose has all that infrastructure, has all that transit already in place. Deardon Station, which is the main train station here in downtown, in the next 10 years, it'll be the largest train station on the West Coast. BART, which is the uh, regional transportation system, the medium gauge rail system, it's now fully funded to connect through downtown San Jose to Deardon Station and is expected to start operation in 2030. So a lot of these big tech companies and developers are seeing that there's all this infrastructure that's already here. They're seeing that this wave of development is happening, this revitalization, this making downtown San Jose a wonderful place to shop and live and work. And we also see downtown San Jose as a place where the local government wants to see development happen. They've put policies into place to just make it easier to go through the development process and get our building permits. And that has attracted groups like Urban Catalyst to downtown. How are you and Urban Catalyst managing the risk that you have from having a, a portfolio that's not really super diversified? I mean, you're all very concentrated in downtown San Jose. That's one small area. You know, I would argue that that's a lack of diversification. So how do you deal with that risk? I hear that sometimes. I also say our portfolio itself is very diversified by real estate asset class. We have two smaller office projects. We have two multifamily projects. We have a high-rise student housing. We have an extended state business hotel. And we have a senior living facility, which is assisted living and memory care. So from a real estate asset class perspective, we're extremely diversified. And then when we look at market risk, which is really what you're talking about when you're talking about diversifying into other metropolitan areas, from a market risk perspective, Silicon Valley is the place that I would want to be, period. And it's the place where we are real estate experts. 
and developers because local developers, I mean, that's important. Development is a lot different than just going out and buying existing buildings. You really have to understand the city that you're working in, the property owners, and really all the ins and outs of how to make things happen. Do you have a worst case scenario strategy? So if, if your thesis doesn't play out exactly as you expect it to for San Jose, do say maybe three of your seven properties still perform great, maybe four or five of the seven still perform great, maybe student housing, multifamily, and the hotel do really well, say. Is that still going to be enough to carry the portfolio? Absolutely. And I mean, that's the reason why you have a diversified portfolio. It's because every recession that you go into has certain asset classes that it hits different. I mean, obviously, like, for example, in this, uh, in this pandemic, our hotel project, I'm really happy about the timing of our fund that I'm not delivering a hotel into the market right now. But our hotel project, yeah, we have an issue right now. Sometimes I like to think of 10 years from now when we sell all of our properties, really that's when we need to have everything clicking for us so that we can return the maximum amount of money to our investors. So if we said 10 years from now, we're in a pandemic, just like we are now, what would happen? Well, we've seen recently here in downtown and throughout Silicon Valley, the sale of office buildings at record pricing or near record pricing. We've also seen the sale of multifamily, specifically a high rise in downtown, sell for new record pricing. And I kind of thought, why are we seeing this? How come we're seeing these giant real estate projects selling for these high prices? And what we're seeing is we're seeing the flight to safety for a lot of these larger institutional real estate groups and equity funds. They're purchasing this because they see placement of their funds in Silicon Valley as the place that they want to be when they look at a long-term perspective as to which market is going to recover the quickest from this pandemic. We've also seen in Bloomberg and in Forbes and a couple other major news sources, you know, they did like their favorite lists, the list of which city in America will recover quickest from the pandemic. And San Jose made the top 10 in all those lists. And you know, I think Bloomberg had us at number one. So when you see that 10 years from now, if we were in the middle of a pandemic, our multifamily would be great. Our office would be great. Our hotel would have an issue. Now, we don't have to sell it 10 years in one day. What we have to do is return the max amount of profits to our investors. So we could hold our hotel for a year or two until the market recovers and then sell the hotel. So when you go to sell these properties in, say, 10 years, who's the end buyer? In general, we've structured all of our properties so that the end buyer can be these large institutional real estate groups. We can sell to a REIT. We can sell to large family offices. But very large buyers is the answer. And are you worried about the trend in commercial real estate of major companies, especially tech companies in the Valley, who are saying our employees don't need to come to the office and not needing the commercial space anymore? I'm curious to hear what a commercial real estate expert such as yourself has to say and feels about this, especially somebody developing into this, this area. I'll tell you what, I think about it every single day. I mean, it's pretty obvious that after the pandemic, there's going to be more people working from home. That's if 5% of people were working from home before, is that number going to be 20% or 30%? I, I don't know the answer. I do know that in general, these big tech companies, they have really put more people into less space in recent years. You, know, you think of it 15 years ago as a bunch of people with their private offices and cubes and things like that. And now it's you know, these open floor plates where people are sitting next to each other. You boil that all down and what you're getting in Silicon Valley is one employee per 150 square feet. Both uh, Facebook and Google, that's their average. For social distancing, you're going to need a lot more than that. For example, in Santa Clara County, which is Silicon Valley, Urban Catalyst, we're open for business. We're an essential business because we build housing. 
And we had to fill out a bunch of forms with the county in order to reopen our office. And one of the things that we had to do is guarantee that we wouldn't have more than one employee per 250 square feet of office. So that would mean that even if Facebook and Google wanted to open tomorrow, uh, they still would only be able to bring back 60% of their employees. So it's going to be more of a, we're going to have to social distance and we're going to have to have people working from home instead of, well, this working from home is going to cause less office space to be in demand. Now, in the short term, that's a lot different. In the short term, nobody's working from their office. In fact, they're not even allowed to. Google and Facebook have said no one's coming back until July, and I expect that to be extended. That's going to go September, maybe December of next year. How long is it going to take the whole world to get this vaccine? It's going to take a while, and people shouldn't come back until it's safe. So in the short term, we're seeing a lot of sublease space come on the market. And I think that's kind of silly, really, because nobody's leasing it. Why would anybody sign a new lease when they can't bring their employees into the office? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we're seeing sublease space come on the market and no one's leasing it. And everybody's going, oh man, these big companies are giving up their space. Well, yeah, Google and Facebook, they have these plans for growth that are 20 years. They're huge. And a lot of these big tech companies do. And so they're going to have some excess space that isn't even occupied yet. And they're kind of going, well, you know, we're going to wait and see how this goes. But in the meantime, let's sublease this space. Now, the good news for all of us uh, office folks out there and commercial real estate people, this is what we're seeing in downtown San Jose right now, is we're starting to see tenants come back into the market. They're, they're starting to look around again. And I asked my downtown San Jose leasing brokers, I said, what is going on? How come we're starting to get these you know, activity pick up again? They said, yeah, we represent all these tenants. They all say they still have demand for their expansions and they're just waiting to lease space until they know they can bring their employees back. And if that's a year from now, yeah, they're going to start looking right now because they say, okay, everybody will be back in the office, say December of 2021. Well, it's going to take them six months to do their TIs. It's going to take them three months to negotiate their lease. It's going to take them three months to decide a location they want. And that backs us up into right about now where they're going to go out and start touring start looking around, start making decisions for the future. For nine months, not a single office lease was done in downtown San Jose. In the last two weeks, we've seen two leases done. And they weren't on the bigger side, they were on the smaller side, but at the same time, they were at pre-COVID leasing prices, which was really interesting from my perspective, also knowing there's this existing supply of sublease space on the market. So what about the pandemic aside? So I'd like to think that in two, three, five, hopefully in 10 years, this whole pandemic is long behind us and it's just a distant memory. But I wonder if, if not just because of the pandemic, not because of health reasons, just because of technology, are there more people working from home and is that going to be an issue? Not because of social distancing. I mean, even from 10 years ago to today, there's a lot more people working from home than there was 10 years ago. So in 10 years, is that going to be exponentially more reducing the need for commercial real estate? Here in Silicon Valley, the way that I see it is there will be more people working from home, obviously, and technology will get better and better, and that'll probably increase that percentage. I don't think it's going to change the demand for office space here. It might change it in locations that are outside of this area. What we have here is we just have a significant concentration of high-tech workers that is really unparalleled in the entire world. If you're a startup in the technology sector, you want to be in Silicon Valley. And when you grow, you grow big. I mean, here in downtown, our office, we're located right next to Zoom. When we started here, it was, yeah, Zoom had some space. And we saw these Zoom employees running around with their Zoom t-shirts on. And then they had the whole building. Then they had the whole building next door. Then they went IPO and their signs went up on the sides of the building. And I went, 
wow, Zoom, is that now a household name? Look at that. They went from a smaller company that was competing in a space dominated by others into the premier group. And that's the Silicon Valley story. And when that happens on this large scale, our office space should be relatively safe compared to other metropolitan areas. I can kind of say in a different way too. You know, Silicon Valley has around 84 million square feet of office total. And right now, Google has 25 million of that 84. Google is a juggernaut. They're huge. When we had the dot-com crash, they didn't have things here in Silicon Valley like iPhones. It was pets.com back then. Since then, the Silicon Valley economy is so strong, it's almost ridiculous. I mean, that's also the reason why we have some of the most expensive housing prices in the world. It's because so many people want to be here. I mean, you read a lot of articles, oh yes, investors leaving California, people can't afford to live in California, they're moving out of the state. For every person that leaves, there are four people dying to move here because we have so many jobs that we've created. And it's this synergy of the technology talent combined with the location of major technology companies that has made this market so strong. I want to talk about investors leaving California, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I know you're a real estate investor, but I hope I'm a stock investor. So I hope when you saw all that Zoom stuff happening that you went out and bought some stock at their IPO because you're doing very well today. I did buy some of the stock. You know, obviously here at Urban Catalyst, we're always looking for folks that are IPO'd or acquired because they have big capital gains events. We had some of the executive team from Zoom into our offices about a week after their IPO. And I'll tell you, I've never seen a happier bunch of people. They were making jokes. They were so excited. I mean, some of the people in that room, they'd made $10 million overnight and they were just ecstatic. It was just really a great energy. Yeah. There's, there's a book called uh, One Up on Wall Street by a gentleman named Peter Lynch. He's one of the most successful mutual fund managers of all time. He ran a, a fund called the Magellan Fund at Fidelity Investments. And in this book, he talks about how small-time individual investors, you and me, have an advantage over Wall Street and professional money managers because we can invest based on things that we see in our everyday lives, good products, good services, good things that we use every day. And we have that insight that not professional money managers don't have. And so that's what I, I think of when, when I hear you saying that about, about Zoom is you hear all of this happening right there and you could run out and buy stock because you know how well they're doing them professional money managers who aren't in the area might be able to. I'll say I bought some stock, but I mainly bought stock in Zoom because they're our neighbor, because I'm a believer in San Jose and I wanted to support them. And because I use Zoom a lot. I mean, before COVID, we used Zoom a lot. We found that connecting with our investors face-to-face over a platform like Zoom was significantly better than a phone call. And we liked it so much that pandemic started. I wanted to support Zoom. I did buy a little stock. I mean, not a lot. I'm, I wouldn't call myself a stock professional. I'm a real estate professional. I put most of my money into the funds that I create. Well, I have to say, as, as both a stock and real estate professional, I'm glad to hear that you do at least a little bit of both because a lot of guys that are in real estate shun and tisk tisk the stock market. So I'm glad to hear you at least uh, do a little bit of both. The stock market's important. It's like the benchmark. It's my funds, you know, my risk profile, I need to create significantly more profit than an investor could get if they invested into the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And so I look at that as the benchmark of something that I need to understand and I need to really do better than. 
And you need to convince people that they can't just put their money in the stock market because that's not easy, but it's easier than going into a real estate fund, arguably. There's a lot more. You just put the money in the stock market and let it do its thing. You could buy an ETF and own the whole market and not really have to worry about it. Whereas with a real estate fund, you need to do a lot more due diligence and you have to understand what's going on. And so to convince somebody that that additional effort is worth the, the additional return or alpha you're going to provide over the stock market. Agreed. And you know, you must be watching my commercials on TV that we have people's nest eggs, so eggs in a basket on a roller coaster. And we say, are you sick of riding the roller coaster of the stock market? You should diversify into real estate because we're, we're a long-term hold. You, know, you don't have to check us every single day. It's not on your phone every five seconds where you're freaking out that your stock is down or up. We're a well-capitalized fund with a long-term plan for real estate here in Silicon Valley. And you, know, you look back over the last few decades of how is real estate done here in Silicon Valley, and the answer is it's done fantastic. So now getting back to Silicon Valley real estate, is there an opportunity to repurpose commercial real estate in San Jose if the commercial real estate demand doesn't come back? Is there a possibility to, to turn it into multifamily housing or senior living or, or just some sort of other type of housing that could be useful instead of commercial real estate? So absolutely. I mean, the majority of our fund, I think less than 20% of our fund is office. The majority of our fund is a residential form of one type, whether it's senior living, student housing, hotel, traditional multifamily. We're big believers in multifamily because obviously here in California, we have a housing crisis and it's especially true here in Silicon Valley. Now, as far as repurposing, until our buildings are built, we can change them into whatever we need to change them into. The city of San Jose is extremely flexible in their zoning and general plan designations and encourage a variety of different types of projects. So we're not necessarily locked into one form of project or another. Now, this pandemic has not caused us to want to change any of our plans. And we plan to break ground on all of our projects next year in 2021. So I don't anticipate that it's going to change our plans. So we talked a little bit about you know, some of the timing of the pandemic when I mentioned how happy I was that I'm not delivering a hotel into this market. But there are a couple of things about the timing of this pandemic, which are really beneficial to Urban Catalyst. So, you know, historically here in Silicon Valley, what we've seen as far as construction costs, in 2008, we saw construction costs go down by around 20%. We have some of the highest construction costs in the country here in Silicon Valley. And that's because we don't have enough labor to build all the buildings that we want to build. And these dips in the construction market, they typically happen nine to 18 months after really a shock to the system. And that's because subcontractors have a certain amount of projects in their pipelines. So far, because of the pandemic, we've seen costs go down around 5 to 8%. Our general contractors are telling me they expect by the end of the year for this to be at around 10%. And we're nine months in. So we're right at that beginning where we would expect to see this type of thing. To give you an example of what that would mean here at Urban Catalyst, if we did end up seeing that 20% reduction that we saw in 2008, we have over $500 million in hard construction costs. That would be a hundred million dollar cost savings for our investors. So extremely significant. You know, when people talk about investing, a lot of times when they talk about real estate, they say, "Oh, well, I'm going to wait for the next recession because I'm going to invest into a distressed real estate asset fund." That's how you make the real money investing in funds. And you know, they're right. And if you define a real estate fund that's a distressed fund, you know, they're looking to go out and buy existing assets for say 15 to 25 percent below what their actual values are. Here at Urban Catalyst, because of the timing of this pandemic, it looks as if we're going to build our projects for somewhere in that range, you know, lower than what we would have built them for. And that really makes us a distressed type of fund, even though we never structured ourselves or marketed ourselves that way. So 
timing of the pandemic from that perspective works out perfect for us. We're going to be signing our guaranteed maximum price contracts throughout next year, right when we should hit that bottom of the construction market. Also at the same time, because you know we've raised over $88 million to date and our plan is to raise around $105 million by the end of this year, we're going to start construction on all of our projects and we're going to be one of the first groups to come to market with Class A product coming out of the recession. We're going to deliver right when the market is recovering and there's not going to be competitors uh, for our spaces. So from that perspective, we're at an advantage as well. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting perspective that I hadn't really thought of. A lot of investors are actually moving out of California with their portfolios. And you mentioned that before. So I want to go back to that. And a lot of people are just avoiding it completely in the first place, mainly due to rent control and other related policies. How do you approach these limitations of investing in California? Why wouldn't you look in other major metros where these headwinds don't exist? That's a great question. It really has a lot to do with the strength of the Silicon Valley economy from a market risk perspective. And you got to look at the companies that you know made their bones here that really started in California are still primarily California centric and have just done a fantastic job. You know, I'm thinking the Irvine Company, Essex Property Trust, these huge corporations that they're still here and they're doing fantastic. California, it does have more regulatory issues than a lot of other states in the in the country. But at the same time, the reason why we still have investors here is because of the strength of our real estate markets. So I don't think that people would invest here at all if it wasn't for the fact that they've made so much money investing here in recent history. We often avoid politics here on the show. So my next question is not one that's meant to ask who you voted for, where your affiliations lie, what you think is right or wrong. But just in general, will the political environment impact the availability of tax programs and advantages like Opportunity Zones? I can't really speak to other tax advantage programs, but I can talk about Opportunity Zone funds. And really, our, the law firm we use, Goodwin Proctor, and our accounting firm, Novogratic, and one of our partners, Sean Raff, they're all on the national working group that advises the Treasury and the IRS on any clarifications to the Opportunity Zone program. And they have a monthly meeting. And they discuss any of these possible changes and what impacts it might have. Obviously, under Trump, he's a big fan of Opportunity Zones. In his second debate, he spent a minute and a half talking about them. Under Biden, the Biden camp reached out to the working group just last month. And the working group asked every single question, what do you think of the program? What changes are you going to want to make? Really, what they said was, overall, they're fans of the program. They just want to see additional reporting requirements. By the way, that's totally common when it comes to these federal type of programs, of course you want to see if they're actually working. Uh, We've been looking forward to getting the reporting requirements for a couple of years now. Here at Urban Catalyst, we even went out and did a third-party study with a nonprofit to study our impacts to make sure that we were creating the positive impact that this program was talking about. So that's really the only change I see. I mean, obviously, if uh, Trump had been elected, he's such a fan, he might have extended the program past its deadline of 2026. Biden, if he's not as much of a fan, he might not extend the program. I mean, under Trump, we thought maybe there'd be some additional benefits that are fantastic. Maybe we won't get those under Biden. But overall, the program was created with a lot of bipartisan support, and we expect that to continue no matter which administration is in power. Is it possible for a new administration to stop an opportunity zone tax, this tax plan before 2026? So it would take an act of Congress that was signed by the president to do that. I don't expect that's how it would work. It'd be more likely if they don't like the program, then they just won't extend it. I mean, it has an expiration date of 2026. So 
that's really the consensus that we've come to, at least as far as the working group has come to, is that more than likely nothing is going to happen. So you personally have developed more than $3.5 billion, and yes, that's billion with a B, in real estate projects, including over 2,300 residential units. Clearly, you've had a, a little bit of success in real estate. But when you look back to when you were just starting, what was a piece of advice you received that still impacts you to this day and helped get you here? I love that question. So the piece of advice that I got, and this is specific to real estate development, and it is when you get into a project, you have to sink your teeth into it and not let go. It can be a lot of ups and downs, but you have to ride it out and make it work. Because if you don't, if you let go, then the project's over. Another great one that I got was uh, people in real estate are always saying location, location, location. But in real estate development, it's really site control, site control, site control. Explain that a little bit for us. Well, in a lot of cases, in real estate development, you enter into option agreements where you don't purchase the property for some time. And it's being able to maintain control of the property through the development process. I mean, you think about it, if you had enough time, like on a scale of 100 years, of course, you're going to get your buildings built. You can always redesign them. You can always work your way into a market where you can finance them. You can always wait until that market picks up again and then you can sell it for top dollar. So from a time perspective, if you had enough time, of course you'd be able to develop your property. So site control is what is the most important thing. How does someone even go about learning about all the different things you've done with Urban Catalyst? You said you came out of college, electrical engineering background, went into real estate. How do you learn about this stuff? I learned on the job. And I'll give advice to anyone who is interested in real estate development, First thing you should do is you should get into the finance of real estate. And any job that is your first job with a real estate company should be as an analyst and preferably an analyst that works with the land acquisition team. So you can understand everything that happens in a development cycle because everything that happens in real estate development always boils down to how much did you pay for the land? Because construction costs are somewhat fixed and how much you're able to rent your buildings for is somewhat fixed. It's how do I know that I am building a project, returning returns that are the right returns. And the only answer is I solve for the land value. And buying land at the right price is the key. So anybody out there, go out, understand real estate finance, get into the land acquisition department and be an analyst, understand how that whole process works through the lens of math. And then you can move forward with your career. So how does somebody acquire, just say, a plot of land in downtown San Jose under market value or even at a value that makes sense numerically? How does somebody negotiate that? Well, I'll tell you how we do it here at Urban Catalyst. I mean, we've been developers here in downtown for our entire career. And we know, say, half of the downtown landowners. And we know all of the brokers that deal land downtown, and they all know us. So almost all of the properties that we've acquired have been off market and been at below market rate. And I'll say that when you talk about alpha, that is our alpha. Our alpha is we can acquire properties at a lower price than anyone else. And that's how we succeed when it comes to you know, the overall impact of our developments in downtown. I mean, let's take a step back. Here at Urban Catalyst, I formed Urban Catalyst in 2018 because I saw this wave of development coming. And I wanted to get in on the ground floor, buy properties really before a bunch of the big tech companies and big developers came to town and drove up all the pricing. And really, that's exactly what we did. We acquired these seven properties. In our best example, we acquired our half acre site that is a, uh, it's going to be a student housing high rise, 800 student housing beds right next to San Jose State. 
We acquired that for $6.25 million. Right next door to us, there's another half acre site that's also going through the pre-construction process to get their building permits to build an 800 bed student housing high rise. By the way, there's demand for like 6,000 student housing beds, so we're just even taking a small chunk out of it, R2 built. That site, they took it out to market with CBRE, and CBRE had something like 90 signed NDAs. They got 12 offers, five finalists. The lowest finalist was in at like $18 million. These are all national student housing developers. And the person that's in contract to purchase it right now is at $22.5 million. It's the exact same property that we have for six and a quarter. So that's my best example of really what Urban Catalyst is able to do here in downtown as far as land acquisition. I mean, obviously, we've been working with the city for so long. We know all the planners and public works, everybody in the building department, all the way up to the mayor of San Jose. So it's, that's why when I mentioned you want local developers on your team when you invest into a fund that does ground development, that's absolutely what you need because it's only the local developers that have been doing business with these folks for so long that they know the ins and outs. And that's a big reason why you don't want to leave that metro area. I mean, you have all the relationships. If you go to another hot market, let's say Austin, you could build those relationships. That's going to take time. It's going to take five years to build those relationships that you just got. Otherwise, without those relationships, you're not going to get that deal that you just just explained. And I think it's quite interesting because I've talked to investors on the show who have done three deals, all small single family, to house flippers, to wholesalers, to you doing billion dollars in development, ground up development in a major metro in California. And everybody says the same thing. Real estate is a relationship game. And it's just really fascinating to see how across the spectrum, real estate is a relationship game. That's exactly what it is. You know, I'm creating a product and the product that I create, it isn't just a relationship with the landowners and the politicians and the city staff. It's also a relationship with the neighborhoods. I mean, I'm on a bunch of these downtown boards. I've been doing business in this community for so long that a lot of the community activists that are very vocal about development in downtown, they're my friends on Facebook. They send me Christmas cards. I've done somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or 60 community meetings. And when you interact with the community like that, and you are a local developer, we call it a win-win. We want to create projects that the community wants and needs at the same time as creating projects that provide the returns for our investors that make it worth their while to invest in Urban Catalyst. If you want to talk about an Opportunity Zone fund that really has the right ideas as far as what the program was initially designed to do, that's what we are. We want to see this synergy, this revitalization, this amazing thing that downtown San Jose can be. We want to see it happen and we want to help make it happen. This COVID-19 pandemic that we've been talking about throughout the episode has put a lot of stress on a lot of different people, from business owners to real estate investors and even individual people. What have you personally learned during this time? And what are you doing to better yourself? Man, I first learned that I really like jogging because I was working from home and I couldn't go to the gym and I started running and I, I just love running. I was, I was up running around 30 or 40 miles a week. It's getting to be winter now, so it's a little colder in the morning. But uh, that was the first thing that I learned. The second thing I learned, you know, I have four children, and the oldest one is 11. So I learned how to really be around my children on a much larger scale than I had been in the past. Now, from a professional perspective, I learned that people really are afraid of the virus. Urban Cattles, I mentioned our office is open. We have 24 people that work here, and maybe five to eight people show up every day. And by the way, we have some of the safest programs put into place 
Everybody is sitting 10 feet apart. Everybody's wearing masks. We have people sanitizing like crazy. People are really scared. And, and I understand that. That's, you know, when I mentioned why people aren't going back into the office and what's going to happen when this is over, how, what percentage of people are coming back into their office, it's going to be a, a work in progress as this thing ends because nobody, it's not going to be like, okay, tomorrow the whole world is going to turn on. It's going to be a slow process over a couple of years to get back to where we were. I don't want to hear uh, about your California winters because I'm sitting here in New Hampshire and we just got snow on a couple days after Halloween. So it's a little bit colder here for us. But no, I definitely, I learned actually something similar. I'm big into the fitness in the gym as well. And obviously with all that shutting down, I, I got into cycling. I do not like running. I could not run like that. But cycling is fun. I did a couple a couple weeks where I did upwards of 250 miles a week. So definitely got into that as well. So I totally can relate to, to what you're talking about there. For a new or aspiring real estate investor listening to the show today who has big real estate goals similar to what you've achieved, what's the best piece of advice you can give them? I think it would be believe in yourself. If you know what you can become and you really think positively towards it and you take the steps necessary to get there, you can get there. Find a great mentor out there that can give you good advice. Hopefully that person is your boss or your boss's boss so that you can really understand what you need to do. And don't be afraid to jump into the deep end with both feet. I personally, uh, at the second company I work for, they just grabbed me and threw me straight in and it was sink or swim. And I learned more working at that company in six years than some people learn in their whole career. Yeah, I can relate to that. A couple of my jobs I've been thrown into the deep end and I tend to succeed in those types of situations. So I did well and, and I appreciate them and it's helped my career a lot. So I totally, again, can relate to that. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. I personally learned a ton about San Jose, investing in California, ground up development, everything in between. I know the audience is going to really enjoy the episode as well. For those listening that are interested in learning more about you, Urban Catalyst, and just want to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go? You can find us at urbancatalyst.com. Easy enough. I will put a link to that in the show notes for everybody listening. You can click that below in your favorite podcast player. Eric, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, Robert. It was really a pleasure talking with you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.